you are listening to the Sermon Podcast at Bethel. We're an evangelical covenant church located in western Wisconsin outside of Ellsworth, and you can find out more about us on our website, BethelCov.org. My name is Todd Speaker. I'm the pastor here, and thank you for listening. At this time, uh, kids can go downstairs for Children's Church, and we're going this way. We flip a coin every week to decide which direction the kids are going to go. I know at least one toddler that's going to be down there. He's got a lot to say. All right, if you would open in your Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 2, and um, we're going to be looking uh, at a few different places in Acts 2, but but our main focus is going to be um, 22, Acts 2, 22, uh, and then we're, we're jumping around a little bit. So we had uh, last Sunday was, was Confirmation Sunday. Many of you are here. It was a, a wonderful time to come together. And, and I know for me, I got to do something on Confirmation Sunday that I haven't got to do in a long time. Well, two things. One, I got to eat cheesy potatoes, which is basically the reason, I didn't know this because I'd never had cheesy potatoes, but it's the reason I think that I became a pastor. Um, Looking back, like, you know how God puts things in you that you don't realize until you're at the center of your call. No, um, uh, but the other thing that we got to do uh, was sit and eat around tables, and I got to go sit at different people's tables and hear how they're doing, and it was was so much fun, Um, and I had so much fun that I, um, as the day was ending, John, our chair, said, you're you're losing your voice, Pastor Todd. And I said, yeah, maybe I think I am. And what followed was a, basically a whole week of me being almost completely unable to talk. <laughs> and so we can praise God that it's coming back, and I'm here to injure it again. Uh, so um, we're, we're in Acts, and maybe you think, oh, that means pastor's not going to take very long today, but don't, don't get your hopes up. Um, <laughs> so a really quick, quick history, history lesson, I think. Um, helps us look at this, maybe. Uh, So in the year um, 313 A.D., something, something happened. Does anybody know what happened in 313 A.D.? It's something that um, transformed the world um, and brought us to this point. In 313 A.D., an an emperor by the name of Constantine um, made a, um, you know, and, and historians looking back, I think is probably true, made something of a political decision, Emperor Constantine did. Uh, you see, for the first 300 years of the Christian church, uh, the Roman Empire was um, at best tolerant of Christianity in the church, and at worst, um, just completely against, right, persecuting the church and, and the early church and Christians. So, so when Acts is written, you know, you'll, as you read through Acts with us this summer, you'll see how the former religious establishment along with the, the Roman state, are, they're just against Christianity. They're trying to stop this movement, and, and no matter what they do, it, it doesn't seem to be able to stop. But in 313 A.D., uh, and, I'm, and I'm hoping I got that right, um, Emperor Constantine uh, made a decree, and he basically decreed uh, and, and it sort of led to this point where the Roman state actually adopted Christianity as its official state religion. Uh, and so when he did that uh, in 313, 
uh, it's really interesting uh, historically because um, in a moment, with the snap of a finger, um, following Jesus became something that was bad for your social status, and it was transformed into something that was good for your social status. So you went from being, you know, at best ignored, and at worst um, losing your job or your family or uh, your political prominence for, for becoming a part of, of Christianity until all of a sudden, now it was the cool thing to do in the Roman Empire. And so the church, uh, in some ways, uh, grew significantly. All of a sudden, instead of meeting in secret and in small places, they were building beautiful buildings where people could come together and worship. They were transforming. Uh, and, and it's actually interesting. Um, the way worship happened changed significantly uh, at around 313 because they started to bring in some influences from uh, Roman ways of worship in, into the church. Um, <clears throat> even just structurally, kind of that, that hierarchical thing that uh, many old churches had. So, so in 313, uh, if you were a Christian, it, it just sort of changed everything. And the, the nation, uh, the empire, was changing so much um, that a lot of Christians were starting to wonder um, if there was, if they were still following, following Jesus. Because Rome had come in and said, we're not going to fight you anymore. This is ours. And now all of a sudden there was all this political prominence and power attached to this movement of self-sacrifice, uh, you know, laying down yourself for others, uh, even suffering for Christ, a movement, you know, built around a crucified Messiah. Now all of a sudden was in charge of the greatest empire on, on earth. And, and so it caused this kind of crisis in the early Christian church in, in the 300s. And a large group of people, uh, probably a pretty small group of people, they decided um, that they didn't think they could follow Jesus in Rome anymore. They said it's, it's too easy, it's too politically popular, and so they, they left the city. Uh, they left places like Jerusalem and Rome and these big uh, uh, centers of Christian life, and they moved into the desert, uh, and, and we call them, looking back, we call them the Desert Fathers and Mothers. This is the very first um, monastic movement in the Christian church because they thought, you know, our faith has been captured by the state uh, and this power, as, as wonderful as it is to not be persecuted, it's, it's changing things and we feel like we're not following God anymore. And so they fled to the desert, to a place of, of struggle and suffering. And, and their hope was that they might find God in the desert in the middle of this incredibly um, just changing time uh, and that, that the gospel might continue, continue forward uh, without being kind of co-opted by, by the empire. And so they did. They actually lived in the desert, and they wrote, um, they wrote a lot. Uh, they had a lot of sayings. They wrote a lot about what it means to follow God and find God. It's really interesting stuff. You can find it. Um, but... My favorite thing that happened is they built these communities, and what would happen in the city then is, is those of us that lived in, in communities with people in kind of in the regular Roman Empire, um, when they were struggling in their faith, when um, things were happening in their lives that they didn't know how to make sense of, when they really wanted to find God, people would go and visit these desert fathers and mothers, and they would ask them for advice, they'd ask them for help, and um, they would, you know, these these people, these Christians, you know, in living in community together and listening to the Holy Spirit would try and bless them. And, and my favorite uh, line uh, that people would use, you'd, you'd go out, you know, say your, 
you're starting to wonder if the empire that's captured your faith is, is changing it and your life doesn't feel good or whatever, you'd go out into the desert uh, to find God, to find the Holy Spirit. And the question that they would ask, kind of the traditional um, seeking God in the desert question is this. They'd say, um, Father, um, Father so-and-so or, or Mother so-and-so, give me a word that I may live. And, and what they're asking for, and it's right there, yep, uh, you'd go out in the desert and say, Lord, and, and you're asking this person who knows God, who's close to God, um, to listen to the Holy Spirit and discern what's going on in your life and give you a word uh, to, to have life, to live, to live differently. Because the world was so chaotic and it was so different and it was changing in these ways. It was hard to make sense of it. And sometimes we just need a word to get us put back on the right track. And so, and oftentimes if you read the the words that they preserved, these desert fathers and mothers, they'd tell these parables or they'd point them to, to passages of scripture and, and they would, you know, people would take that back home and it would change, it would change their lives. Well, um, I think we, um, we live in a very different time than they did and, and our problems are very different than theirs, but we too live in a, in a world that is changing quickly, Right? In a, in a world that is, is different every single day than it was the day before. And when the world is, is changing, there's always going to be people that are going to tell us uh, a story about why it's, it's changing and what that means. But, but I think we need a word to live. And, and as I was reading through Acts uh, 2 and 3 and 4 this week, and I encourage you, if you haven't started already, it's not too late. This summer, we're going through the whole book of Acts. And so if you follow the beef, the uh, scripture in your bulletin, and and uh, mailed to you and stuff, um, you'll walk through the whole book of Acts with us and see how God's Holy Spirit uh, works. Uh, because as we sit here, and maybe you feel this way, I know I do sometimes, that uh, it's hard to know the best way to move forward in all the, the chaotic things uh, going on. Uh, we might be asking God to give us a word that we may live. And, and what I love about Acts 2 is Peter um, preaches... Uh, we're going to look at three sermons that Peter preaches, the first kind of three sermons. And, and each sermon, um, it contains kind of three words for life in them. Uh, and I think these three words um, really can do a lot how we interact with our changing world, how we understand what the gospel is. Um, uh, these three words, uh, according to um, what uh, Peter says, empowered by the Holy Spirit, um, and, and you'll, you'll see them as we go. And I just want you to remember them. It's give, more, and turn. Um, because Peter sort of hits each of these three words uh, as he's filled up by the Spirit and he's explaining what the good news is. These are three uh, kind of gospel words that really ought to change every part of our life. And they get at that underneath story of what's going on in the world. Um, what we really believe is, is happening uh, so, a little background, as you know, the, Peter and the disciples, they've been waiting and waiting and waiting for the Spirit. Last time we talked about how the Spirit showed up uh, and, and rested on everybody's head. And remember, that's the same Spirit that's at work in creation and the same Spirit that leads kings and prophets and the same Spirit that uh, lands on Jesus' head and empowers his miracles. It's spread out and distributed to all believers, so, so that happens. Uh, and then my favorite... Um, my favorite verse, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Acts 2, 14. Uh, so they've got the flames over their head, and, and everybody's wondering 
what's going on. They're speaking in different languages, um, and everybody in Jerusalem, they can hear what Peter and the disciples are saying in their own language. And so as I explain this to our confirmation kids, it's like, so if you, uh, you speak English, and if you were around that day in Acts 2, uh, you would hear Peter's message in English, and how unbelievable that would be. If you spoke uh, Chinese, you'd hear it in Chinese, and Spanish, you'd hear it in Spanish, because Everybody in the city needs to hear this message. Um, so everybody's hearing this. Everybody's wondering, what is going on? Why is this happening? They're, they're talking about, oh, maybe these guys are crazy. Um, and, and Peter, it says this in verse 14. It says, then Peter stood up. And, and I, I love that because they've been waiting. The disciples have been waiting for this moment. Jesus told them to wait. The Spirit is here. And Peter knows now is the time for this message, and he's going to share this, this spirit-inspired message, but the first thing that you have to do when you're following God wherever he's leading you is, is sometimes you, you have to stand up. It's time. You can't wait any longer. And so as Peter stood up with the 11, he raised his voice, and he addressed the crowds. He says, fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And then he goes on to put into context these events. He's He's trying to explain to these are all Jewish people in Jerusalem. They've come from all over Judea because they're celebrating a, a big festival, right? The festival of, of Pentecost. So there's these Jewish people who speak all different languages from all over Israel, the Roman world. They're coming. They're in town. They're listening. Peter stands up. He's speaking their language, and he starts putting it in context of Scripture. He starts explaining it to them in a way that, that they can understand, trying to tell them that, What's happening right now it has to do with, with everything. He's saying everything that you've read and prayed about and studied in your Bible growing up, it's, it's culminating in this, this moment. That's what Peter wants them, uh, wants them to know. Um, and we're actually going to skip down because he, he does that. We're going to skip down to verse 22 through 24, and then I'm going to jump over to 38 and 41, and it's up there on, on that slide. Um, Perfect. It says, and here's all the people, right? They've got really modern clothes on, don't they? Um, Peter's, they're looking at Peter, and Peter says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus was a man accredited by God to you by miracles. Uh, so, uh, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Peter starts with that first word. He starts with the word give, right? Look at verse 22. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth was accredited to you. He was given to you by God and shown to be who he was by miracles, wonders, and signs. Peter says, God gave Jesus, and it says that God did these things among you. You know these things. And it says that this man who was given to you was handed over, um, right? So you've received this gift, uh, people, uh, Jesus, or Peter's saying. Uh, you handed that gift over, uh, but God wasn't surprised. God knew this was going to happen. By God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, you handed him over to wicked men uh, and put him to death by nailing on the cross. So, so, so far, here's, here's the story, Peter's saying, empowered, filled up by the Holy Spirit, these three key words. He says, God gave you Jesus, and 
What did they do with Jesus? They nailed him to the cross. So, all right, so here, God says, here's this awesome present. Here's my own son, the word made flesh, my flesh and blood, who's healing and feeding and teaching you all these things you've never heard before. And it's amazing. And I'm going to give that to you. And the, the, immediately, God's people, the Israelites, and the reason Peter focuses this way, right, is because this is an audience of, of just Jewish people. He says, you guys together, and, and, and honestly, some of them probably standing there in Jerusalem because it was at like the last party they all celebrated together. The last time all these people came to the city was for Passover, and Passover is when they crucified Jesus, okay? So, so they came, they partied, they celebrated Passover. Oh, and by the way, they also crucified Jesus, some of these same people probably. They went home for a while, and then they came back to celebrate Pentecost. They came back, the same people. And so Jesus is, or Peter is literally saying, like you, some of you standing here were probably shouting crucify him. We're probably shouting, uh, give us Barabbas, not Jesus. Peter, Peter says, God gave you Jesus, and what did you do with him? Crucified him, right? Um, and then he continues. And, and so God, the gift is, is returned. It's almost like when you get uh, you know, something for Christmas you don't want, you take it back to Target. Like they took Jesus, they're like, we don't, we don't need him. And so uh, they crucified him, end of story, let's move on. But no, God says, no, um, I'm sorry, I'm not done giving to you. It says, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Uh, Peter says, uh, God gave you Jesus, the word made flesh. You sent the gift back in the worst, most tragic possible way. And God says, uh-uh, <laughs> the, gift, the gift is still coming. He rose from the dead. Okay, so that's the first word. God gives, and you'll notice this in the other sermon. And we're going to jump down to, to 38. It says, um, they, they ask him, they ask him, a, ask him a question. Um, it says they're cut to the heart. The people hear this story, and, and, and Peter really makes the point again and again in this in-between in, in point. God gave, you, you refused. He says, so what do we do, the people say? Um, they're like, they're hurt. They're like, we did this. We know this. We rejected God's gift, and God keeps giving. Uh, Peter says, this is what you can do. Uh, this is our third word. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's uh, 2 verse 38. Uh, you see a line just like this over and over and over and over again in Acts. Whenever whoever's preaching the gospel gets to the end um, uh, they give a message like this. People say, okay, so if God gave and gave and gave, what do we do? Well, you repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so the word repent um, is, it doesn't mean say sorry. It doesn't mean um, like confession. Like sometimes we think of repentance as the same as confession. Um, literally, repent just means turn around. So if you're, going, if you're going this way, and now I've repented of that direction, and now I'm, I'm going this way. So, so Peter says, God gives and gives and gives and gives, and you reject and you reject and you reject and you reject. Um, the solution, if you don't want to reject anymore, is to stop it. <laughs> That's it. That's stop rejecting. He says, repent, turn around, and then um, you can be baptized uh, as a way to show what God's doing in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So he's saying, if you turn around because of Jesus, because of what he's done, he's not going to hold it against you. 
You can be baptized and made new, and you can be filled up with the Holy Spirit who will really make you new. Okay, so repent. That's, that's the solution. That's how we can respond. We can, we can turn. That's what Peter says and Paul says when they preach the gospel. Turning is always key. Turning and being forgiven. And then it continues on in verse 39. It says, um, and this I think is really important. It says, this promise, this idea, and listen to Peter. Peter's saying this empowered by the Holy Spirit. He says, it's for you who are standing there in the crowd. And it's for your children. So, so you who are here, when you go back home after the party, tell your children they can repent and turn too. Um, and it's for all who are far off and for all whom the Lord our God will call. Um, this uh, deals with that second word, more. Because it may not sound surprising to us because we are from, uh, uh, well, evangelical Christianity, right? The idea that anybody can be saved, we should preach this message. But for, for, Jesus, for Peter's first hearers and for Peter himself, um, the only thing the Messiah is really supposed to do is to come to save them and the Jewish people. But here's Peter. He says, not only is it for you who are here, not only is it for your children, not only is it for all who are far off, and by that, um, Peter means uh, probably the, what we call the diaspora. That's the Jewish people spread all over the Roman Empire that weren't able to come to Jerusalem that day. It's for all who are far off. And, and then finally, this is the crazy one. It says, and for all whom the Lord our God will call. Peter says this message of turning, uh, this message of God giving is for um, more people than you can possibly imagine. That's what, that's what Peter, Peter is getting at. And, and actually, as you read Acts with us this summer, which I think is so cool, um, Acts is dedicated to, to proving this out. Um, this, this message that Peter will preach a couple more times. Uh, because even Peter, when he's standing here in front of that crowd telling them for all who the Lord God will call, he doesn't um, think it's going to go as far as God does. <laughs> uh, Peter uh, really, and if you read Acts, you'll see this, it's pretty clear that at the beginning, even Peter doesn't imagine that, that Gentiles in, in Rome could ever become Christians. But, um, but the Holy Spirit it snuck, snuck this in here for Peter, right? This is for all whom the Lord God will call. And, and it turns out, after you read Acts, and you can, you can challenge me on this, but read it, you'll notice that after you read Acts, that um, the all whom the Lord God will call is always more than the people in the day can imagine. It's always further and bigger. Sometimes we look at this as a limiter. It's like, well, God's probably not going to call them so the gospel's not for them. But, but as Peter's standing here, it's, it's for all of you, all of your children, all of the Jewish people everywhere. And you know what? It's for anyone else that God might call. And as you read Acts, you'll notice that that number is so much more enormous than Peter imagines. It continues. It says, with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. This is another way for Peter to say, turn, turn, you're going this way, go, go this way. Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number on that day. Uh, so the very first message, Peter, inspired, filled up by the Holy Spirit, preaches, and, and it has that, that three-word gospel that God gives and gives and gives and gives, though you reject. 
the gospel, this news is available to. It's for more people than maybe you are willing to imagine. And the only way to respond is to turn. How can we respond to a God whose unchanging love and grace pursues us again and again and again, even though we send the gift back again and again and again? Well, at some point, we can respond by saying, okay, fine, I'll accept your grace, God. And in this story, in this first sermon ever, Peter stands up inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, people do, right? More than 3,000 people hear that message and they, and they turn and if you read uh, chapter 2 and 3 and 4, you'll notice that Peter, Peter says a version of this message again and again. Um, you know, so um, in Acts uh, 3, um, verse 13, it says, um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has glorified Jesus. He gave you Jesus, and what did you do? You handed him over to be killed. And then you, and it says, you, you disowned the holy and righteous one. You asked a murderer to be released to you. You killed the author of life, Peter says. God gave you the author of life in flesh, and you killed him. But God can't stop giving. God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. The man who you see and know, he's talking about someone he healed, was made strong in Jesus' name. And faith that comes through him has completely healed him. So repent then and turn to God. Turn away from the direction you're going. Turn away from returning the gift and returning the gift and rejecting God's grace again and again and turn to God. Uh, and this time, uh, Jesus, Jesus does this. He's saying this to religious leaders. And, and they reject his message, right? The, the religious establishment, most of them, uh, they reject Jesus' message. They reject this idea that they need to turn at all to be in align with who God is. They reject the idea that Jesus is God's son, and they refuse to turn. So, right, God gave them a gift through Peter, and Peter, said, Peter gives it to them, and they say, no, I don't want it. Uh, they actually capture them and drag them in front of court. This happens a lot in Acts. Um, this time it's a, a religious council called the Sanhedrin. Um, and, and Peter uh, sums it up again for them in Acts 4, 10 through 12, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the same, the same sermon. He says, and you think about this, Peter is preaching this to his enemies. So what more can you imagine? He says, then know this, it is you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. God gave you the gift of Jesus. You crucified him and rejected him. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. No matter how many times we push God away and refuse what he's trying to give us, God keeps sending the gift back. Even Peter standing in front of the Sanhedrin. So again, uh, the three-word message, and, and you can go ahead on to the next one, Patrick. So I told you I was kind of skipping around a little bit. Um, so, so these three words, Peter's three words, give more in truth. Give is about the direction of God's grace. It turns out, according to Peter, that God's grace tends to flow one way. This isn't a partnership relationship. Uh, and actually, in the Old Testament, that covenant, uh, God is supposed to shake humanity's hand. Humanity fails again and again to shake God's hand. So God sends a human that is him to shake his own hand. God gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. The direction of grace tends to flow again from God to us people who reject it and reject it 
and reject it. More tells us about the scope of God's grace. According to Peter's messages and according to the whole book of Acts, encourage you to read it. Uh, God's grace is always going to be available to more people than even Peter can imagine. And finally, the response. How do we respond to a God whose unchanging grace and love keeps pursuing human beings through rejection after rejection and failure after failure, no matter how far any human beings walk away? Well, the only way to respond to a God that follows you down your wrong path, no matter how far you walk, is to turn around and accept what he's trying to give you. Now, um, I think the natural human question especially when we think of this um, direction of God's grace, this just enormous idea of God's grace, is, is to say, like, but, like, what about, or but what if somebody does this, right? What if um, somebody really walks far away from God? What if somebody really rejects God? Uh, you and I might want to ask this natural human question, you know, but, but what about that person, And that person cannot possibly be inside of that more, inside of that all who God calls. Um, Well, uh, lucky for us, the rest of Acts tests this out. Uh, And you'll notice it as you read it. It just tests it again and again. Uh, You'll notice that first, the message in Patrick, you can put that but what if up if it is on there. Um, You'll notice uh, first, uh, it's the Jews in Jerusalem, right? Peter's first audience is full of people, some of them who said, please crucify God's son, okay? They and their leaders, they killed Jesus. But here's Peter, inspired, empowered by the Holy Spirit, giving them a message of God's grace, saying, though you killed God himself, God wants to give that back to you. Um, next in Acts, you'll notice, um, and we're going to talk about this pretty soon, um, the, that same religious council that uh, Peter was speaking before, arrested before, Uh, Later in Acts, they'll get together, and they'll decide that this Jesus movement is getting out of hand, and and they'll actually have one of the the members of this movement who got his start uh, doing a food distribution. His name is Stephen. Stephen will stand up in front of them. He'll preach a sermon. We're going to look at that sermon, and at the end of that sermon, the religious council is going to say, this guy is a blasphemer. Actually, it's funny. They don't really make a ruling. Uh, While he's telling them about God's grace, they just... They just freak out and cover their ears, and they just pick up rocks, and they're like, we just got to silence this guy right now. And so they stone Stephen. He's one of the first uh, Christian martyrs. And so God gives Jesus, we killed him. God raises him back from the dead. God sends people like Stephen and the religious leaders. They kill him, and and standing there when they kill Stephen is this guy named Saul, (laughs) and he's holding everybody's coat so that it's easier for them to hurl the rocks to kill Stephen, and the question that any normal person would ask, but what about somebody like Saul who approves of the killing of a Christian and plans to go find more Christians to throw rocks at? You might not imagine this, but, but that three-part message is for Saul, too. Uh, later on, it gets even crazier. The more gets even bigger. Um, another disciple meets, uh, meets a eunuch. Uh, eunuchs belong to a class of people in the Old Testament who aren't even allowed to enter the temple because they're fundamentally unclean. They do not belong among God's people. 
and you wonder as you're reading Acts, is this message, is this gospel, is this grace big enough for somebody who doesn't even belong inside of God's house? And it is. <laughs> He's baptized. He turns and God changes him. It hits a new level, and this is the level that, that Peter, uh, as he's preaching these words, doesn't realize he's going to have to eat them later. Um, Peter, Peter can't even imagine this is possible. He can't even imagine the more is big enough for this guy because um, he gets invited and called to go to the home of a Gentile. Uh, and not just any Gentile, but a, a Roman centurion. Uh, so not only is he by birth and genealogy an enemy of God, he owns a sword with which he might use on God's people. Peter gets called to the home of a Gentile soldier named Cornelius, belonging to the class of people that Israelites have fought again and again and again, belonging to the nation that is abusing and oppressing and harming them. Here's Cornelius, and he says, Peter, come to my house, and the Holy Spirit says, yes, go to Cornelius's house. And Peter's wondering deep down in his heart, and later the church will have to have a big meeting because this is so crazy and so nuts about this, but Peter goes because he hears the Holy Spirit, and he says, you know, I know that you are the occupier of this land. We know that Cornelius is, is you know, in the class of people that put Jesus on the cross, and you wonder uh, if people like him who opposed and rejected and fought God and God's people forever could ever turn around. And sure enough, God's grace includes them. Again and again in Acts, the gospel of more, more grace, more love, more care for people, and as, as the Holy Spirit, as the church encounters every kind of person that existed in their day, you'll notice that the good news is for them too. That they fit in that class and category of all who God calls. And it's always bigger than we think. As you read Acts, you'll notice that the only real question is how will the receiver respond to God's offer of more? And God gives it, and even Saul, right? Uh, Saul hears more. He knows about what happened to Jesus, that he died and rose again, uh, that he still rejects him, and God keeps coming back to Paul, Saul. He keeps coming back to Saul. He keeps coming back to Saul, and eventually, God pursues him far enough and reaches into Saul's life in this uh, completely um, uh, across-the-bounds way and helps him turn around. Because with every rejection is another offer for more grace. Um, I think this uh, idea, this gospel of, of more, is one of the hardest things to get our heads around as, as Christians and as, as people. Um, because the normal, I think we have this normal theology, most of us. And I don't just mean church people. I think most religions have this normal theology. Um, our, our idea is, is this, right? If I do the right things... God is going to bless me. And I don't care what name you give for God, if it's, you know, God uh, of, of the Bible or the universe or, or whatever, people tend to believe if I do good things, the universe or God or whoever is going to bless me. If I work hard, I'll be rich. If I put good, this is the one I hear a lot, if you put good out into the world, good will come back to you. And we tell this story 
of the world. You get what you pay for. Even in the Old Testament, um, it sounds like this. Moses says, choose life that you may live. Uh, We tend to think most people, most Christians included, tend to think that life is about doing the right things and God rewarding the people that do good and punishing the people that do bad. And, And frankly, deep down in our subconscious, when we see someone who's really struggling, the first thought that comes into our head is, what is it that they did to deserve the situation that they're in? You get what you pay for. We might be tempted to put limits on who's welcome. We might be tempted to say this person hasn't done enough to get God's grace. This person has opposed God too much to be transformed. We tend to put limits on who, um, who can turn, uh, who the Spirit will pursue, who God will choose. But Peter's story and the Holy Spirit's gospel and the whole story of the Bible is not that story. The three-word gospel says otherwise. It says God gives good again and again and again, though people reject him. In fact, every time God gives something good and people reject him, God turns around and he gives more again and again and again. And he keeps giving more and pursuing further and further and further after us than we would expect or imagine. He pursues more of us than we could imagine. And we're all invited to not be good, not start being good, not start doing the things we're supposed to be doing so that good things will happen to us, but instead to just relent in our resistance of God's amazing grace. To just say, you know what? I'm not going to fight him anymore. I'll turn and be baptized and finally accept that offer. And it doesn't seem to matter how bad someone is or how far gone someone seems or how irredeemable they seem to you or to me or impossibly separated from God someone is. God keeps pursuing them even when they're real garbage, we think. Because no one is off limits from God's grace. And of course, in the Spirit's message, there is always a call to turn, to repent. And so we're invited, I think, to turn away Uh, from the stories that we believe that don't line up with this one. We're invited to turn away from the words that say, that person couldn't ever change, that person could never be made new, or maybe I can't ever change. We're invited to turn away from the way of living that's opposed to Jesus, be washed and made new in baptism and be transformed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Because God, uh, and and we can just skip to that last slide, Patrick, Uh, because uh, I believe that God hasn't given up on blank yet. I think if we hear this message, all of us have an idea in our head of who fits in that category. Um, And I invite you, encourage you as we pray at the end of this service to ask the Spirit who it is that you've been putting in that space who you think maybe God has given up on. Maybe it's an individual that you know, that you worry about, that you've prayed for for years, and they seem to have turned away from God and faith, and they're living a life that's totally different than you think they should be living. And there's a part of you that's like, I don't think it's possible that God's grace would work in this person. But remember, God hasn't given up 
on them yet. His grace pursues and pursues and pursues. Maybe for you, um, it's a, a group of people. It's a kind of person. It's somebody that you think of as an enemy or a problem or, or even bad or evil. And you think that person could never change. That person could never embrace God's grace. God and I condemn them together. I've got news for you. God hasn't given up on them yet. Maybe when you hear this, and I think this happens more than, a lot more than it should inside the church. Maybe you you hear this and you think of your own name. And you think, you know, I failed and I turned away from God and people don't know um, who I really am. And you might wonder if God has turned his back on you. I've rejected God. I've lied to others. I've done wrong things. Or I just don't feel like I'm quite good enough to merit the grace that God is giving. Maybe your name fits in that space. But whoever it is that you put in there, we're invited to turn away from anything that doesn't line up with God's message of grace and abundance. Anything that doesn't line up from the message of a God who pursues us and pursues us and pursues us, a God whose son and death and resurrection covers our sins and the sins of anyone who will accept that gift. A God who doesn't see anyone as beyond the reach of his grace. A God that doesn't see any price too high to welcome a lost son or daughter. A God who aims to constantly surprise those of us who think we can figure out who belongs. That is who we're invited to turn in line with. Would you pray with me? Lord God, as we see in your word, as we look through Acts, Lord, and we we notice that there is nobody that you won't chase after, that your gospel is for all whom you will call, that that all always includes more than we can imagine. And so we ask, Lord, by your spirit that you would remind us, that you would bring to our minds the people that we've written off, the individuals, the groups, maybe even ourselves. And we've said, God's grace isn't for her. God's grace isn't for them. God's grace isn't for me. Lord, we ask by your spirit that you bring to mind those people and you remind us that this abundant pouring out again and again good news is always for more than we can imagine, that it's always for all who you would call. Help us, Lord, to be transformed by your grace, to turn away from any other story, any other way of being in the world that doesn't line up exactly with what you tell us the story of the world is. We come before you, Lord, and we confess that we have not uh, the ability to please you, that we can't make ourselves good, and so instead we accept the grace that you've given us in Jesus, and we ask, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit you would make us new. In your name we pray, amen. I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward. Let's conclude our service in praise.
Thanks for joining us. You can find out more about our church, our live stream, and our in-person services at BethelCove.org. Thanks and have a great week.